It is February 14th, and it's Oregon's birthday. so much that we just had an orgasm all over your ear holes. Oh, Oregon, let's do that one more time. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Orgasm. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked-out history folks at orhistory.com. I'm your host, Andy Lindbergh. And under the guidance of resident historian Doug Kank Crispin, we profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. This week, we examine the orgasm. is our third orgasm. If you're not familiar with the series, allow me to fill you in. February 14th is the anniversary of Oregon being granted statehood, or as we like to say, Oregon's birthday. So, each February 14th, we at Kick-Ass Oregon History have a tremendous orgasm. These episodes are just fun little stories about Oregon's past that don't really have a theme or unifying structure. They're just tales or events or reflections that came to mind when considering Oregon's birthday. And, just for shits and giggles, we added a few State of Oregon almanac facts. Stuff that may really not be all that important, but sound tidbits to drop into hipster potluck dinners. Stuff that makes you sound all crazy superior, and maybe even a little bit sad. Oregon State Animal, the beaver. Oregon State Tree, the Douglas fir. Oregon State Nut, the hazelnut. Largest 
gathering in Oregon history, Victory Over Japan Day, August 14, 1945. Recently, Kick-Ass Oregon History released a podcast examining the victory parade after the Portland Trailblazers' only NBA championship and bestowed this event with the title of Oregon's Greatest Day. We noted that the June 6, 1977 celebration was the largest gathering in Oregon since 1945. We thought it might be appropriate to spend a few moments looking at that original Gathering Giganticus at the end of World War II. America waited out World War II's last tense hours. At the White House, President Truman, State Secretary Burns, and Cordell Hall stood by for the momentous surrender message from the Japanese. Radio men, sound and camera crews of worldwide newsreels kept vigil with Washington reporters. Then, after tantalizing hours of rumors and guesses, came the President's historic announcement, August 14, 1945. I have received this afternoon a message from the Japanese government in reply to the message forwarded to that government by the Secretary of State on August 11th. I deem this reply a full acceptance of the Potsdam Declaration, which specifies the unconditional surrender of Japan. In the reply, there is no qualification. The greatest news story of all time, final unconditional surrender with the whole world waiting to celebrate VJ. August 15, 1945, is the official Victory Over Japan Day, as proclaimed by President Truman. Now, the official surrender did not occur until the document was signed by the Japanese in Tokyo Bay on September 2, 1945, on the decks of the battleship Missouri. Yes, that same battleship Missouri that Steven Seagal kicked Tommy Lee Jones's ass upon. But I digress. The surrender of Japan was effectively a done deal. After the United States dropped two atomic bombs on Japan, killing about 200,000 of their citizens in the two blasts. While August 15th is the official VJ Day, news of the surrender came on the afternoon of August 14, 1945. A crowd reported to have numbered two million gathered around Times Square waiting for the news. At 7.03 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the Times Tower news sign displayed, Official! Truman announces Japanese surrender! Immediately, impromptu, party-like-its-1999 freakouts on massive, massive scales resulted across the nation. This was how San Francisco greeted the news. The city by the Golden Gate engulfed in a tide of joy and relief. Here, America's major port of embarkation to the war in the Pacific, the Japanese surrender brought jubilation unrestrained. Clang, clang, clang went the trolley. The victory special rolled down Market Street with everybody celebrating. were shipmates on that memorable day, and the Navy salute made it official. And Portland was one of the daddies. 
Victory in the Pacific Theater was a huge event for the United States, as the horror of World War II would finally be over. But Oregon had a bit more skin in the game than other states in our nation. 150,000 Oregonians served their country in World War II. The Beaver State ranked over 3,700 of our fellow Oregonians killed in the conflict, with another 5,000 being injured. But the war also affected Oregon in other ways, as our economy had been transformed into feeding and equipping the combat in Asia. Wartime industries like the production of ships, lumber, and aluminum plants had engulfed our state and had swelled Oregon's population by almost 200,000 during the war. The night of Tuesday, August 14th, was an evening overflowing with anticipation. The Oregonian chronicled the voices on the packed streets. What's the latest? Is it official? Does VJ Day start now? Do we have to close the beer parlors right away? Spontaneous, joyous bedlam, it was called, as the streets surged with thousands of Portlanders rushing into the screaming crowds and confetti made from shredded papers fell from the windows of the offices above. Cars honked their horns, lumber mills sounded their whistles, and victorious voices screeched. Liquor stores closed due to fears of booze and the crowd making a destructive atomic cocktail. The paper also reported, In the Chinese section of Portland, an end to even longer hostilities was being celebrated. The Chinese had been saving their firecrackers for many years for this occasion, and this noise was added to the rest of the din. Mayor Earl Riley ordered bars serving beer, wine, or liquor to be closed for several days to not fuel the enthusiasm of the crowd. But you know those crafty, resourceful Portlanders, always able to find their spiritous liquors. Municipal Judge John Seabrook set up an emergency night court to quickly process the anticipated wave of revelers brought in for public drunkenness. He ordered defendants arrested after 4 p.m. to be released when sober. But those arrested before the announced surrender were to be assessed a $10 fine. The emergency hospital set up on the fourth floor of the police station treated a reasonable number of face and head lacerations that resulted from the street fights. A much more wholesome marking of the victory was held at Multnomah Stadium on Wednesday the 15th at 8 p.m. It was Portland's official observance of Victory Day with a religious and patriotic program. Clergymen of various religious faiths were to be featured, as well as Governor Snell and Mayor Riley. Music was also provided by the Teresa All Negro Choir and the 468th Army Service Force Band. Meanwhile, downtown continued to rage. This party lasted for days. While the whole celebration had technically begun Monday night with a crescendo of jubilance with the announcement of the surrender on Tuesday afternoon, the party lasted into Thursday morning. A truly epic party for a truly epic event and a new transition in Oregon history.
Oregon State soil. Yes, we have a soil. Jory soil. The Oregon State Blue Book defines Jory soil as being distinguished by its brick-red, clayish nature as it has developed on old volcanic rocks through thousands of years of weathering. Longer-time listeners to this series will know that we've featured a few tales from a fellow named Stuart Holbrook. Now, Holbrook was a prolific writer, an accomplished columnist, and is regarded as somewhat of a significant historian of the Pacific Northwest. He's a fucking great storyteller, and that may be one of our favorite attributes of Holbrook's here at Kick-Ass Oregon History. His ability to make a good yarn so lyrical, you can hear the horse hooves on the slick cobblestones in his stories. You can see Bunko Kelly smelling that odd odor of Undertaker's dope as it spills across his foggy path. The father of Oregon is Dr. John McLaughlin. The mother of Oregon, but not his wife, is Tabitha Moffat Brown, who crossed the Oregon Trail at the age of 66 and established a boarding school for orphans. But Stuart Holbrook was also a painter. In fact, a painter of some renown. Painting under the alias Mr. Otis, Holbrook produced a huge number of paintings and carried on this odd charade of pretending to be a friend of the artist Mr. Otis, rather than copying to the works himself. While he is reported to have never publicly admitted to being Mr. Otis, it doesn't seem that the charade was very good. But the art of Mr. Otis was somewhat known in the region, and Holbrook even had a book of his art published nationally, of course under the pseudonym of Mr. Otis. Recently, the Portland Museum of Modern Art in North Portland had a rare showing of Mr. Otis originals. The resident historian had a chance to speak with the museum's curator, Ms. Libby Whirlborough and she told us a little of why Holbrook undertook this odd art project. In his, in his legends and his stories that he talks about, there's a lot of this idea of the self-made man and self-promoted characters, iconic characters. So uh, he basically made himself a famous artist, you know? And then from that, he promoted this artist and played on not only the paintings themselves as satire, but basically created this huge satire of, of the art world and the art and art commerce and the art industry um, in the 50s, right around when abstract, abstract expressionism was kind of taking its full effect and people were kind of starting to be a lot more open-minded about what art was. Whirlburl also told us of some consistent themes that live in both Holbrook's writing and Mr. Otis's paintings. This show is filled with uh, historical references, and so most of his paintings um, are depicting some, some character from history, some oddball character from history, and so I would equally say that a lot of these pieces stand out to me because of their reference and 
um, I could, you know, go in depth about the the little bit I know about each of the characters in the paintings, but um, that could take all day. What do you think is, you know, the or maybe, you know, a few of kind of the characteristic, you know, classic Mr. Otis pieces here in the museum? Um, some of the classic ones would be, um, well, we're standing in front of it, this Logger Well Content, um, which is kindly on loan from Gwyneth Booth. Um, Can you describe it for the yeah. maybe listening? So what, what you have is a picture of a logger uh, and a bull looking into each other's eyes, uh, standing in front of a clear-cut hill. Um, and on the back of it, and also in the in the descript descriptor uh, of it in the in the book about Mr. Otis, it says that this painting depicts uh, the devastator who, having cleared the landscape of all vegetation, now pauses to contemplate his evil work. Um, but it also is just this really beautiful, whimsical painting, um, which has also a, kind of a rich perspective, and. Uh, before thinking about that or looking at that, I wouldn't, and just having the title, I would say that he looks pretty satisfied, but, you know, it's, it's basically, uh, Mr. Otis is referring to kind of this, like, moral moment of a clear cut. Uh, m interestingly also is that Stuart Holbrook does have a history with the logging industry, so that's why I feel like this is a pretty rich piece for the show. Uh, as a side note, it also says a group of lumbermen attempted to purchase the picture with a view to destroying it, but Mr. Otis refused and chose to place it with a conser conservationist couple. Next, we examined one of Mr. Otis's most famous paintings. I think uh, Fido Can Set Up was one of his no. most famous pieces. It's one of his favorites. And his correct? favorites. Or Mr. Otis's Mr. favorite. Otis's fa one of Mr. Otis's favorite pieces. And it's funny that as I've uh, taken people through the show in the past, everyone's been like, really? Why? But um, this picture depicts uh, three kind of bulbous uh, human-like figures. Um, looking, uh, but they're kind of alien looking or, you know, kind of bulby cartoons, all uh, looking at a small animal, which actually looks like a lizard or alligator or some sort of armadillo. But obviously to them, it's their pet and their, their dog, <laughs> um, which makes sense that the, these bulbous characters would have a armadillo or lizard as a dog. Um, it's kind of fucking creepy to me. I mean, it, it yeah. looks like something you see in like the wall, you yeah. know, like like hanging on the it's wall. It's very the wall. psychedelic, yeah. And um, and 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 with his great sense of humor, it, they talk about or Stuart Holbrook talks about how this was very a very controversial piece among dog owners <laughs> because it, it brought up like the dynamic of the master and the dog. Um, but really, it's just this really crazy tripped out cartoon. So um, I think that, uh, yeah, it's one of the bigger bigger pieces in the show, or most well known of Mr. Otis's when you kind of look him up. And true to Holbrook's roots, a tip of the hat to some classic Western history. And this is um, a picture called Jesse James was always kind to his horse. And, <laughs> and uh, it, it depicts him, um, Jesse James, 
uh, in that moment where he is about to be shot by um, Ford, is that right? And um, there is a common myth is that uh, he was hanging a mirror, he was looking into a mirror, but he still didn't see himself about to be shot. But in this painting, um, Mr. Otis depicts him hanging a picture of him and his horse, and that's the last thing he sees before he dies. Um, and there's a couple things that are really interesting and weird about this painting. One is that he's, uh, his death and his, his assassination is being witnessed by his pet cat. And two is he has the sign on his wall, uh, wanted reward sign, but uh, it says alive or dead, which um, is backwards from any, any sign I've ever heard of when they talk about dead, dead or alive is the way it would usually be predict or said. So. And he's in his socks. And he's wearing his socks, yeah. His boots are off. So how did Mr. Otis's work rate? Was he a better painter than he was a historian? Now, the resident historian is certainly not an art historian, so his commentary on the technique and skill of the artist is not authoritative. Nonetheless, he found Mr. Otis's work to be folksy and approachable, with obvious nods to themes of the Pacific Northwest and its history in some of the examples. We posed the same questions to Ms. Whirlborough. So how do you evaluate Mr. Otis's kind of artistic technique? I mean, is he a good artist? Um, well, I, you know, you could ask a lot of different people that question, if, but if you're asking me, I'm I would, you. I would think these are, these are some of the most beautiful paintings I've ever seen. <laughs> so I, I, but this is my aesthetic. I, I really come from a school of kind of this like divine sensibility or like ecstatic painting and, uh, or self-taught and that's where the real kind of twist or, um, true beauty of it comes is that he was kind of promoting Mr. Otis as this self-taught or primitive artist. Meanwhile, he, he himself is a self-taught artist. I mean, he is a self-taught artist. So um, he did do a lot of his own drawings for his books and he and the paper. I know that he was um, an illustrator, but for the most part, these are, these are self-taught paintings and um, that, that is just what I am naturally drawn to. Uh, and I think it's really beautiful. We'll post a link on orhistory.com to the University of Washington's Mr. Otis collection. They have some high-quality photos you can examine. Spend a little time and see how a famous Oregon historian chose to spend his free time and the images of Oregon that sometimes emerge from that collection. The Oregon State Fossil Metasequoia or the Dawn Redwood. Oregon State Seashell. Yes, of course, we have a state seashell. In fact, we've had one for quite some time. The Oregon State Seashell is the Oregon Hairy Triton, or the Fusatriton Oregonensis, as it was named in 1848. Yeah. Well, everybody, thanks for coming. Uh, my name is Doug Kent Crispin, and I am the resident historian for orhistory.com. This is our first ever Kick-Ass Oregon History field trip. So I want to thank you guys for coming along. 
Um, we do a bi-weekly podcast series called Kick-Ass Oregon History, and uh, I think you should check it out if you haven't. One of the topics we're pretty geeked out on is Bigfoots in Oregon specifically, but kind of Bigfoots in general. We're into D.B. Coopers and some other weird stuff too, but Bigfoots is kind of a true one. Uh, that were that really rings true to our heart, I guess, as residents of the Pacific Northwest. So that's kind of hard because... In January of 2014, we hosted our first kick-ass Oregon history field trip to the Dalles, where in addition to talking about the history of Bigfoots in Oregon, we had the chance to visit the Columbia Gorge Discovery Center, which was so much fun and a damn good museum to visit. One of the highlight exhibits there is a fantastic presentation of the significant role that Wasco County's had in creating the state of Oregon that we love today. And I'm pretty fucking geeked out on museums, as you know. This next part isn't going to have much to do with Oregon, but history in general. But it's our show and you didn't pay, so there it is. But I hope you'll listen nonetheless. I recently had a chance to consider the birth of museums, or if you will, to entertain the idea for a moment, more introspectively, the idea of a personal museum, a personally collected and cataloged exhibit of natural history, or history in general, or even just way personal exercise in stirring a sense of curiosity or wonder. I want to talk about wonder cabinets, or Wunderkammer, and that's such a fucking awesome name so why the hell wouldn't you say it if you had the opportunity right wunderkammer say it with me ass kicker wunderkammer okay why do the rude vulgar so hastily post in a madness to gaze at trifles and toys not worthy the viewing a kunst or wunderkammer was defined by samuel keichelberg in 1565 a collection featuring both man-made works of art, artificialia, and objects from nature, naturalia. So picture a tall wooden bureau or armoire or wardrobe, all stuffed full of cool shit from all over the world, or even more specialized and concerning just one geographic area, brimming with rocks and jars of soil and maybe animal hides and feathers and pressed plants. While the roots of these cabinets come from an earlier era, these methods of presentation were quite popular from the mid-16th century to the late 17th century. At this point, the so-called Age of Enlightenment rolled upon our foremothers and changes in curatorship took place that forever regulated Wunderkammer to the realm of oddity and collections of obscurity. Kind of like what the internet did to porn. Kind of. An age of wonder as explorers and conquerors were leaving Europe in ships to cross the oceans, people wanted to appreciate what was happening on their expanding world. They wanted to understand. All sorts of attractions and collections were assembled by some and sought out by others. Little, tiny museums. It's as simple as that. Typically, these cabinets were kept by persons of title or wealth, but scholars and other learned individuals were encouraged to do so. In 1594, 
Francis Bacon recommended that they assemble goodly, huge cabinet, wherein whatsoever the hand of man by exquisite art or engine has made rare in stuff, form or motion, whatsoever singularity, change, and the shuffle of things hath produced shall be sorted and included. Miniatures, beads, coins, items gathered from the Americas, anatomical deformities in jars, feathers, and phosphorescent minerals, horns from far-off beasts. All of these items and others were reported to have been contained in various curiosity cabinets. One collector in 17th century England, a John Woodward, had collected over 9,000 fossils. Calling the specimens the histories of facts, he commissioned what he termed his standing monuments. He kept this noted collection in four walnut-veneered, handsome cabinets, each with 14 oak-lined drawers. Another collector of natural history named Martin Lister had commissioned a special cedar cabinet to be made to house his collection. John Stowe, in early 1600s London, demonstrated the interest that many held in seeing curiosities. He wrote of St. Lawrence Church's displayed objects, I myself, more than 70 years since, have seen in this church the shank bone of a man, as it is taken, and also a tooth of a very great being, hang up for show in chains of iron. And in the cloister of St. Mary Aldermanbury, Stowe reported there, is hanged and faceted a shank bone of a man, as it's said, very great. In fact, more after the proportion of five shank bones of any man now living among us. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Primary source evidence of a pre-17th century British Bigfoot? Well, no, probably not. Dang it. Historian Ken Arnold documented quite a market for curious items in 17th century Europe. He wrote of a ship of the time carrying many curiosities, including horns of sea unicorns, sea dog skins, and bones of whales. These items were to be requisitioned by the best places in the closets of the curious. Arnold also found that there were several specialty shops concerning the collection of the curious, including one in Paris named Noah's Ark, which boasted an inventory of all curiosities, natural or artificial. Inevitably, wonder cabinets evolved into wonder rooms, small apartments stuffed to the gills with weird shit and rocks and taxidermed animals and treasures from Asia and the New World. Museums started to take root and to expand. New ways of classification of objects disjointed what Francis Bacon had called Wunterkammer's charming shuffle of things and turned this into the tired, ordered environment of the modern museum. Institutional reigned, and individual collections begin to be regarded as the domain of eccentrics. Recently, an interesting convention occurred at Northeast Portland that caught our attention, a convention concerning those curious of cabinets. So I went. 
this is resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, and I am at the Curious Gallery 2014 over by the Lloyd Center. And I am speaking with some folks about kind of what's going on, curiosity cabinets, and ways of presenting history and things like that. So I'm speaking with uh, Bronwyn Dorhofer and Carla Brower right now. Thanks for uh, chatting with us today. Can you tell our listeners, you know, what is a curiosity cabinet? Um, well, it's a uh, curiosity cabinet started, you know, if you look at art history, they kind of began in like the Renaissance where it was basically a bunch of wealthy collectors uh, going out of their way to collect rare and unusual specimens to show off to their friends. Um, and I really view it as a way for art and nature to intersect in one place. We asked Ms. Dorhofer, what has inspired a modern interest in collecting and displaying curiosities? the desire to be surrounded by things that inspire you is never going to go away and so I think it's kind of nice to see um, people embracing the cabinet of curiosities again and maybe consider starting one in their own home or bringing collections um, you know to others and this kind of style. And I really like this idea, dear ass kicker, assembling our own individual cabinets of curiosities that we alone curate. Something significant to you in the natural beauty that is Oregon. As one scholar said, notably, it is invariably oneself that one collects. So maybe it's a glass vial of Oregon beach sand or some porous rock from around Sister's Way, a skull you found in the desert when you went out to the east, but an individual collection of items that represents something about the physical space that you love. Because that's what today is all about, baby. Loving Oregon. What do you look for when you're assembling a curiosity cabinet? I think it really depends on the taste of the person who owns the cabinet. Um, I've, in my personal one, you know, I like to see unusual specimens, um, corals and skulls or shells. But you know, throughout history, everything was collected from um, you know articulated skeletons to. Um, beautiful artworks and you know so forth um, mollusk shells such as the hairy triton and what would you recommend for folks that are just kind of starting out and want to start assembling you know a cabinet um, collect things that interest you and um, kind of go from there things that are inspiring or you find beautiful even though other people might not uh, feathers or plants or you know start small try to obtain things that excite you and you think are interesting and try to learn as much as you can also about the items in your collection I very much enjoyed attending the curious gallery even if I was decidedly unsteampunky versus the rest of the crowd at the event. And I look forward to an expanded program and a better opportunity for folks to find out about these curious cabinets that we have in our midst and to hopefully give their imagination a jolt, some inspiration to make their own cabinet filled with curiosities from Oregon history. Oregon's state beverage. Milk. Yes. It's fucking milk. Oh, and the state dance? Yep, we have a state dance. It's the fucking square dance, which I don't know. I'm not sure how I feel about that. But I do know, sure as hell, next time I'm over at your place for the hipster potluck dinner, I'm going to find a chance to drop that shit into casual conversation.
Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers, and be on the lookout for future podcasts from ORHistory.com. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kent Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Kick-Ass Oregon History is on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. You can also like us on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Want more Kick-Ass Oregon History in your life? ORHistory.com offers fun, informative, and very kick-ass Oregon history events each and every month. Bus tours, walking tours, live shows, and more. All this and more insights into kick-ass Oregon history are available from ORHistory.com. And coming up on February 18, 2014 at 7.30 p.m., Please join resident historian Doug Kent Crispin at the Jack London Bar for Oregon's kick-ass birthday party. We'll listen to some true tales of Oregon's past, watch some film, and eat some free cake. Because a birthday party without cake is a little shitty, don't you think? And we'll discover the winner of our third annual diorama contest. That's Tuesday, February 18th at the Jack London Bar. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kent Crispin. The back of a panel van does not count as a wunderkramer. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass! orhistory.com